Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to Walking with Jesus Through the Word, one chapter per day. I am Pastor Jason Van Bemmel from Forest Hill Presbyterian Church. It's day 755 of our three-year journey through the Word of God, one chapter at a time. And we come today to Daniel chapter 8, a most remarkable chapter in just how incredibly specific and accurate it is at foretelling human history. So much so that critics of the Bible insist that there's no way this could have been written by Daniel in the reign of King Belshazzar. But it is the word of God, and that is what the critics do not understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, your self-attesting word that is perfect, that is beautiful, that is powerful. Help us to receive this word today and help us to be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. One of them, out of one of them, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard one speaking, 
And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men, and the people who are the saints." By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So here is Daniel in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. So in chapter 7, it's been a few days since we've been in Daniel, but in chapter 7, he saw the four great beasts and that was in the first year of Belshazzar's reign that he got that vision. This is now the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. During this time, during this year, Cyrus the Great has already kind of united the two halves of the Medes. And he is, um, he is already growing to be, um, to be a great king. And so he's going to come and be the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. So notice there's two horns to the ram. He's the ram, or the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire, I should say. And there's two horns. Both were high. One was higher than the other, but the higher one came up last. What does that mean? Well, it's actually very specific. The Medo-Persian Empire, we know it today as just the Persian Empire, because the Persian side was so much greater. But actually, it was, began as the Medes. And so Cyrus, the Mede, um, rose up and, con well, he, Cyrus conquered the Medes, united the two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes were greater first, but then the Persians were greater. 
than the Medes. Um, and so they were, they were the Medo-Persian Empire. And he did as he pleased and became great. No beast could stand before him. There was no one who could rescue from his power. He conquers Babylon. He conquers Belshazzar. Um, he he puts in place Darius the Mede and Cyrus. Cyrus is Persian. I misspoke earlier. but um, And so it becomes the Medo-Persian Empire known as the Persian Empire. It's this two-part empire with really the Persian part taking the lead until a goat, a male goat, the Greek Empire with a great conspicuous horn, Alexander the Great. He moves so fast that his feet aren't even touching the ground. That's how swift Alexander the Great's conquest of the known world was. In record speed, he conquered the entire known world. And he really slammed into this ram and totally disempowered it. It's actually an interesting description of the Greek Empire and the Greek army because one of the ways that they fought was by keeping all of their men tightly together in a phalanx with big pikes and shields and they and they would really just ram into the enemy and they were sort of this impenetrable mass so it almost is just like a goat with a giant horn that's sort of slamming into this larger force because the Persians had a much bigger army than the Greeks had under Alexander the Great, but Alexander the Great was unstoppable, and he became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, he was very young, he was in his early 30s, Alexander dies in 323. His two sons take over, but they can't really run things, and so eventually four of his generals divide up the kingdom, and so there are four conspicuous horns, four generals. And then one of them, out of one of them, came a little horn. So this is the Seleucid dynasty. It's one of the four uh, heirs of the Greek empire, the Seleucid dynasty. And it's the the eighth ruler of the Seleucid dynasty is known as Antiochus IV Epiphanes, or sometimes just called Antiochus Epiphanes. So he reigns from 175 to 164. This is really important because Daniel's having this vision in the 500s BC. And Antiochus Epiphanes isn't going to come to power until 175 BC, so hundreds of years in the future. He's not the Medo-Persians. He's not Alexander the Great. He's the eighth king descended from one of the four horns of Alexander the Great. But here he is being foretold so long ahead of time. And this is what has caused many Bible critics to say, no, this is way too specific. This is clearly about Antiochus Epiphanes. The Seleucids end up reigning over the glorious land, verse 9, which is, of course, the land of Israel. Um, and it just seems obvious. He's, he becomes great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Now, there's a lot of debate over who this prince of the host is. And some people want to see it as being the same person as later is identified as the prince of princes, but I don't think so because Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes becomes even as great as the prince of the host. And I think that this is a reference to the Jewish high priest whose name was Onias the third, that he is able to be, Antiochus Epiphanes is able to be even as great and influential as the Jewish high priest and take away the place of his sanctuary, overthrow it 
for a period of time. And what ends up happening is he ends up killing thousands of Jews because they refuse to go along with this desecration of the temple and the sanctuary. Um, Antiochus really wanted to force Jew, um, he wanted to force Greek cultural standards on everyone within his empire and get rid of all cultural distinctives. He wanted the Jewish people to forsake the law of Moses and to forsake the worship of Yahweh. And he succeeded for a time. For how long? Well, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. It's actually pretty specific. But there's a period of time until the time when Judas Maccabee arises. You may have heard of the Maccabees and the Book of Maccabees and the Maccabean Revolt. But that happens about, uh, what's my year on that? 164, I think. Um, yeah. So, so from about 170 until about 164, December 14th, 164. So a period of just over six years, which if you do your math, 2,300 evenings and mornings is a little bit over six years, probably from the time the high priest died in 170 to the time when Judas Maccabeus cleansed and rededicated the temple in 164. So a little over six years. Now, Daniel has no idea what any of this is. This is all stuff that's completely foreign to him. He has no clue. Like, none of this is familiar to him. Rams and goats and horns and desecrations. And and he's told, basically, this is for a long time in the future. This is for a long time in the future. For us, today, reading Daniel 8, the takeaway that we need to get is God is sovereign over human history. He can even number the evenings and mornings that his people will be without temple worship some 300 plus years before it comes to pass because he's in control. Antiochus Epiphanes thought he was in control, but it was actually the sin of God's people. The sin of God's people, I think it's the sin that's really being addressed by the prophet Malachi as I read it. Malachi comes along about 400 or so BC after Daniel's time, before uh, the Seleucid Empire time, and he comes along and, and he warns the people of Judah and Jerusalem that they're not worshiping rightly. They're offering up lame and blind animals. They're refusing to tithe. They're divorcing their wives easily. They've got this complacent worship. They're not worshiping idols anymore. After the Babylonian exile, God's people never again bow down to carved images. And, and they're so stubborn that they will not give up their temple worship and Antiochus Epiphanes has to kill thousands of Jews, and eventually he loses. But but even during that, their iniquity is still great because they're refusing to worship God rightly. They're no longer worshiping idols, but they're refusing to worship God rightly. They're withholding the tithe. They're bringing blind and lame animals. They're giving God the leftovers rather than their best. And so it's a disciplinary punishment against God's people when he takes away the right worship and replaces it for a limited period of time, but he is in control. Now, the other thing we might be confused by is that a couple of times Daniel is told that this is for the time of the end. Now, does that mean that God was planning on ending the world in 160 BC? No, no, it was gonna be another 200 years after that before Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of God's people, but, but it will mark an end, and that is an end of this oppression 
of God's people by foreign powers so that they cannot worship God freely as they want. So the Maccabeans are going to take over and they're going to establish a dynasty that's a Jewish dynasty. It's not a Davidic dynasty, but they're going to preserve the pure worship of God until actually later a guy named Herod the Great he's going to overthrow the Maccabean dynasty and he's going to take over and that's when Jesus is going to come. So it, it's a, the time of the end. When the Bible says the end, it doesn't always mean the end of time or the end of creation or the end of the age or the second coming of Christ or anything. It just means there's, there's certain epochs, there's certain eras, there's certain things that God is stretching out and, and Daniel's being told, hey, this, this isn't for your time. Write this down, seal it up, because this is for a time a long time from now when one sort of period of time is going to come to an end and you can see that really from the time of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem in 586 BC until the Maccabean revolt in 160 165 um, 164 until that during those hundreds of years the worship of God Yes, it was reestablished in the temple under the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and jo jo uh, Joshua the high priest, but it was still under this oppressive oversight by pagan nations. It was still a subsidiary part of a larger pagan empire until the Maccabean revolt. And then God's people have this period of independence, this period of being able to worship God freely, this period of being free from the shackles of foreign op oppression until they're going to fall back under it again under the Romans. But by that time, Jesus is about ready to come and he's going to put an end to the temple worship system by replacing it with the true and living temple. That is the temple of the church that no one can control and no one can oppress and no one can destroy. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And so you can say that the time of the end here, the way I read it, is the time it's the end of pagan foreign pagan oppression and control of the worship of god it's going to be set free first by the maccabean revolt and then ultimately by jesus coming after that so but from da daniel's perspective it's simply this is a long time off in the future again as i said this is so specific and so clear so detailed that a lot of bible scholars even professing Christian, professing evangelical Bible scholars will say, well, Daniel 8 was probably written sometime around the Maccabean revolt. That's their answer. It was written sort of as pro-Judas Maccabeus propaganda. We have to reject that entirely because the word of God says this was written as a vision given to Daniel in the third year of Belshazzar, hundreds of years before Judas Maccabeus was even born or was thought of. And we have to accept it for what it is. It's the word of God, and it tells us that God is sovereign over human history. And we can get great encouragement for that because civilizations rise and fall. Times and epochs come and go. America has been around as a constitutional republic since 1788, 89, when George Washington took office. As an independent country since 1776. It's not very long in the history of the world. We've been around for about, you know, 250 years. 240 years of constitutional republic. It's young. And we don't know what the future holds. We don't know which way God is going to turn America, but we know that he's continuing to build his church. And we know that his temple, 
the true and living temple of the Church of Jesus Christ is not under anyone's oppressive hand, and it is free, and it is under Christ Jesus. And so we need to trust God no matter what comes. There was, there was a time of great suffering coming for God's people under Antiochus Epiphanes. It was horrible. To live through that time period would have been just terrifying. But they had this word from Daniel that it was going to be of limited duration. And we have the word from the Lord Jesus that no matter how bad things get, one day he is coming again and he will put a final end to all evil and all persecution of God's people. And we are spiritually free now, but we will be forever physically, eternally, spiritually free and alive and full of joy and love forever and ever. So whatever we suffer in this life is temporary and God is in control. That's the message of Daniel 8. Whatever we suffer in this life is temporary and God is in control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word from you. It's a good word. It's a word we need to hear. We need to be reminded of who is really on the throne and we need to make sure that our lives are aligning with your kingdom and your glory. Help us, Father, in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for joining me for Daniel chapter 8. I hope it was an encouragement to you, and I do hope you have a blessed day in the Lord. Mm -hmm.